0: Hello, uh, welcome to the Abbey Talks. Thanks very much for coming. My name is Lisa Farley. I'm coordinator of the talks here at the Abbey. Just a little bit of housekeeping to do before we begin. If I can ask you to make sure that your mobile phones are turned off. That would be great, and to be aware of the exits, which is the door that you came in, and the double doors to my left. Now, it is the day after the night before, an opening night that witnessed another standing ovation for Sive and half of Listowel descending on the Abbey. It wasn't just another night at the Abbey though, it was a night to celebrate the easy wisdom and acerbic talent of John B. Keane, a writer so beloved that his casualness and warmth belied the genius storyteller that he was. He wrote of injustice, he wrote of poverty, he wrote of strong women, of loneliness, and the blight of disappointment in a way that we could fathom, recognise, identify, and deny, deny, deny. John B. Keane knew the weight, wonder, and power of words and above all, the importance of family. So tonight we welcome to the stage John B's youngest, Joanna Keane O'Flynn, with the Irish Times, Sarah Keating, to talk more about her father, and the great Keane clan.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. It's an honor to be here, cocked up, as we say in Kerry
2: and the Peacock. (coughs) It seems particularly fitting venue for this sort of a talk, particularly when you consider the history of the Peacock itself, which didn't exist when your father first submitted Sive to the Abbey Theatre in 1959. Um, and it is the place which would have, where it would have found a natural home as the site of experimentation. Mm-hmm. And of course, the following director, Tomás Magana, would have welcomed uh, Keane's work along with the work of Brian Friel and uh, Tom Murphy, who he began to champion. I well suppose I'm interested in the very first um, production of Sive uh, in Lisdoon, obviously before your time, um, and yet that relationship between how Sive went from being a local amateur drama production to something that ended up on the na- on the uh, the national stage uh, later on that year.
1: Yeah, my dad um, he went to a play called uh, All Souls' Night by uh, Francis Tomelty. Uh, and it was on up in the, in the local hall in the town and when he went to it he said figured I could write a play myself so he went off down to the bar and he had I think he had a glass of whiskey and he wrote through the night and then he couldn't stop writing and then so i developed and he sent it to the Abbey I, and I think it was rejected and then he chanced it with the local drama group and they produced it and then it did the amateur drama circus and it won the All-Ireland in Athlone and uh, the rest is history, and the Abbey invited Sive back to perform here, and apparently there were queues and everything, and fierce excitement. and. Tatarara about it. Had he been writing previous to that, or was this a sudden? He, yes, impulse? he had slippets and little bits, and he would submitted articles to various newspapers. He wrote a poem when he was uh, when he was going to St Michael's College. He was seventeen, called the Street, and uh, he got in trouble in, in the school for writing it because the teacher didn't believe it was his own work, and. Uh, that but that didn't stop him at all you know it's he just kept on writing and uh, my grandfather uh, his name was Bill Keane and he was a principal teacher uh, in a country school out the road and he was uh, supposed to be a very amicable gentle man he uh he left books all over the house and uh, across the road then there was this uh, bookshop called Flavin's bookshop and the owner of Flavin's again was very welcoming nice fella you know convivial sort of fella and my father then would be going over and back the bookshop was across the road and then you know he'd be reading books and Brian McMahon lived in the town so it was we nearly had to write in the stool. Was there anything in particular about the theatre that attracted him? Well, I know that when he was small, he was very mischievous and half cracked, as all Keens are, and uh, and full of devilment. And my grandmother used to have to send him out to the Stacks Mountains to, so to kind of calm him down a bit. But when he was young, they used to have little plays in the street, uh, out, you know, at the back of the houses. There were kind of sheds, and they, they used to have plays themselves. And my my uncle then, um, Eamon Keen, was an act was probably famous before my father. People might have been familiar with him. He's dead now uh, for a good few years, and I think he's dead over 20 years now, uh, 24, I think. And he he was um, he was a, an actor with uh, Radio Air, and so maybe he kind of spurred my father on as well, you know, I'd say. But I was only a dirty idea at that time. <laughs> yeah. Was your father involved in any way in the amateur...
2: Um in the amateur drama circuit on a practical level, like did he get involved in the first production of
1: the play? Did he ever act himself or? Uh, he, I think he acted in a few productions, but not really, not, not, he wasn't very much hands on. He started writing then and he was, once he started writing, then he started writing furiously and uh, he had a very active mind and imagination and he couldn't stop writing. So he's a very prolific, he was a very prolific writer as everyone knows because of the wealth of work he has produced over the years, he wrote several plays and then he wrote the novels and short stories. He couldn't stop writing. As he got older, he got tireder and he liked uh, his, I suppose his brain. He had prostate cancer and he, he didn't he he hadn't that same urgency in himself to, you know, to write. He, 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 he liked to watch television, bad television at that. And he liked uh, Westerns and um, murders, you know, that like kind of. Poirot and all that kind of stuff he loved all of that he kind of his brain was getting he was getting tired. It seems quite
2: audacious for somebody on their first play to send it off to the Abbey Theatre what did he know do you know what he knew about the Abbey or whether he'd ever seen any of their touring productions or been to Dublin to
1: see? I'm not sure really Sarah because uh, because I'm so young (laughs) (laughs) no I, I don't know really to be honest about that part of it but I presume I suppose he would have been in touch with the arts because of his brother you know as well and maybe he had I know he came to Dublin on his honeymoon and that was like going to Las Vegas in those times and uh, so he probably you know did engage with the arts a lot and he did read a lot then in in latter years he didn't read at all Uh, he loved Dickens he was a huge fan of Dickens and really that's, you know, he wasn't that cultured really, but he loved language, he loved people. When I was growing up, up, like, for example, he'd have, um, he always wore a v-neck jumper that he got in a shop called Ned Sullivan, Senator Ned, he'd be a friend of Feeke's, Feeke McAnil's, and he's a senator here now, and he had a a shop called The Man Shop, and he'd get his v-neck jumper from from Ned's father's shop, and then he'd had a, he'd had a shirt inside of it and a pocket, and inside in the pocket he'd have a little bit of paper and a viral. And if you said something musical or lyrical or interesting or witty, if you had a quirky turn of phrase, my father would duly jot it down and take it down, and he'd keep it, and then he'd store it, and he and then it would it, it could come out in a play, or in an idea. And then over the we lived over the bar growing up, and uh, there were two bedrooms, a sitting room, and then my father had a study. And it's still the same today. My mother hasn't touched it. And in the study, then, he had a panoramic view of uh, Market Street. And, and on Thursdays, you'd have a fair day. And then and uh, he saw everything. and He saw, I suppose, he saw the ugliness of life, and he saw the beauty of life as well. A lot of things appalled him and horrified him. He often talked, and he was often upset at the way a man might treat a woman. You know, for example, a farmer might come into town, I can remember him telling me this, and he wouldn't bother carrying her messages for her. Do you know, that kind of thing hurt him. He was very sensitive as well, and he had a fantastic, glorious temper. (laughs) And I suppose that angry young man sentiment kind of echoed in his writing. But um, himself, you know, for example, he was disgraceful at football matches. So he was. And uh, when he was playing football matches, he was, uh, he was really outrageous. And at football matches, I was often with him, trying to calm him down, and referees corrected him as well. And then he'd be in the pub then, drinking with them all afterwards, and he's thrown his arms around them. He kind of, he also, it was the time, do you remember about 20, I suppose, 20 years ago, you could have, two, was it two half pints? Was it four half pints you could drink two pints, couldn't you, and drive? So my father taught, taught me how to drive at 16, and he told me that I could drink, he made it out, he wasn't great at maths, but he made it out that I could drink nearly eight half pints. <laughs> and have a great, so I was driving him around the country at football matches. He, You know, he was a character, really. Just
2: that idea of him sitting in a study overlooking the main street, and in an interview he once commented that I'm never stuck for words, all I have to do is look out the window. And I'm wondering, did people recognise themselves in his plays or what the local reception would have been? Did he ever have any experience of, you know, of that farmer who wouldn't carry yeah, there the was woman's a play, messages? There was a play in, once yeah. he
1: did called The Good Thing. And I can remember them all going off, all dressed up in maxis at the time. And they were all going, it was on a limerick for some reason. And there was one kind of character lady in it. And she was very sexy and vivacious and lively, as you, if, you, if you get my drift. So this local yeah. character anyone from the could know her anyway they all went off on the bus to the play and in the middle of the play there was a very there was a passionate love scene and she, that's me she said <laughs> she stood up in the middle of the play so yeah i suppose people could identify with him and he did but he was sensitive as well you know to the, like for example the field is kind of loosely based on on a murder in rain a gown but at the same time he maybe he did ruffle feathers he wrote two plays Pishog is one; it's an Irish play, and *Vigilantes*. And he never wanted them to be um, done while he was alive. So we still have a copy of *Vigilantes* and *Pishog*. And my mother law says we won't do *Pishog* until I'm dead. <coughs> *Vigilantes* maybe we might, you know, we might do it in the next few years, whatever. Uh, that was about the rugby ban in the 40s, so because he played rugby and he was upset over that, and he wrote about that as well. So he he didn't want to. Upset people either. He was very. He was. He, he had a great temper, and I can remember him as well. Himself and my mother had fantastic rows, and he'd bang the door, and then he'd come back and he'd give her this huge kiss, and uh, they they, and they were mad about each other. They were madly in love. It was great, great stuff.
2: I suppose I'm thinking in particular because you mentioned the field of the figures of authority, and in the field we have the policeman and the um, priest figure both represented in quite a negative light, and. I mean, his plays were very brave for the time, in, uh, were, yeah. for criticising authority in a small, uh, you know, a, a small town, but still kind of a rural environment where the authority of those figures would have been really paramount. Did he ever have any kind of altercations with authority coming he in? Did, asking yeah. him to
1: change. He did. Yeah. He did. Uh, he he didn't get on with particular policemen in the town. In the town, maybe fellas watching the bar for after-hours drinking. Uh, he had issues with them. Uh, he would have been also. I say, as a young man, very angry with the church, and my mother has recorded in an interview, actually for the Abbey, for the education programme, she remembers after Sive, a curate came in and, and advised my father on many changes which needed to be made to the play. And uh, we ne- he never, anyway, apparently, the curate never jackened the door again. <laughs> so he didn't tolerate any of that. And he did expose, okay, he did expose... The hypocrisy of the church, a lot, really, especially in their treatment, ill treatment of women. I think, which
2: it's was ama- no harm. Yeah, at it's the amazing. Time. I think because in the context of the professional theatre in the nineteen fifties, you had Dublin Theatre Festival being cancelled in nineteen fifty seven because of the priests wouldn't give their blessing. And to think that in the amateur local scene, that there was a certain license to actually express this sort of yeah. dissatisfaction
1: the is incredible. Lismore is a kind of a very, it's it's a very colourful town where, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a great place to live, and I suppose lots of writers have come out of Le and North Kerry, Brendan Kennelly, George Fitzmaurice, do um, uh, you know, several writers, I could go on and on, even today we have John McAuliffe, he's a really good poet, uh, we have Christian O'Reilly, you know, it's it's kind of St. Michael's I don't know this St. Michael's phenomenon whatever maybe they, I don't know what it is really Bob Boland you've lots and lots of writers I could go on and on and it kind of people were I don't know people kind of enjoyed the all of that the madness and the defiance and they encouraged it there were there were a lot there was the oddball who criticized it as well but it was a good kind of it's a great place to live still yeah I suppose if you look at
2: the, you know, if you look at the history books again, it would be seen as quite unusual for a man to be so, I suppose, almost feminist in his outlook and in the way in which he represents women uh, in the plays. And I think that's really clear yeah. in current productions and why they still um, have resonance with a contemporary audience. Yeah. Where did that interest he loved in women?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Mike, he loved women. Uh, not, you know, not all, women. he, he was. A, he loved my mother really, but he loved his mother. His own mother was a very strong character, and she. She was in among and uh, I can, her name was Hannah. I was called after her, and actually she threatened my mother. When my mother, when my mother had me, uh, you will call her, you will call her Johanna after me, won't you? My mother did then, but uh, she was a fantastic character, and she, um, he was mad about her. He used to go up to see her every day, and as she got older, then she kind of turned into a bit of a hypochondriac, and she could have, we called it the traveling pain. she could have a pain here and it could get worse and go down to here but she had a great generosity of spirit at the same time he adored his mother and then again my own mother he loved her but my mother was and still is a powerful woman she accommodated him and she made him and he acknowledged that as well she made him into the man he, he was for example like she was totally selfless and very practical really she kind of like for example she reared us and we were lively and we were my brothers were always up to mischief and fun and everything she reared us she ran a bar she cleaned toilets she she did everything really and she allowed him have a a disciplined timetable for a writer as a, for a writer he had his own program he would start in the morning maybe at 10 and then at one he would have his lunch maybe he might go for a little walk he'd, as we said he'd circle the square in the town or he'd go down to his beloved gardenard, and then he would have lunch on the dot at one o'clock it was as men did get their dinner on, on time at, in those times and uh, then he'd go for a rest and he'd get up again and do some more writing he didn't do the bar. He'd have a few. He might have about six. When I was a teenager, he might have five or six pints, five nights a week smitics. I I the other side of the bar. My mother was doing the bar. Now people worked in the bar as well, but she was the powerhouse. And she would make anyone into a writer. She says she says to all of us, anyone there's a writer in, in you. She said to every one of us, of course. But uh, and my brother uh, Billy now is writing, and she's done the same for him. She gives him freedom and you know the space to write and you know she she really I really applaud her and he was crazy about her and he met her at uh, at the Listowel races in 1949 in welsh's ballroom but he had seen her before that in castle island in a shop and he was totally captivated by her eyes she has these big blue, baby kind of blue, penetrating eyes, and if you look down there, Evelyn O'Flynn is down there, she's 15, and she has those eyes, <laughs> so she has, and um, he even wrote about the eyes. Now, I'm going to read a, a verse about the eyes from the book of poems, if you wouldn't mind, okay? And he said about the eyes, two eyes that beam with early dawn, two eyes that sleep when night comes on, two eyes that gently break on me as little waves out of the sea over a drear and dismal shore with silver feet and joy once more, two eyes that teach me how to live, how to receive and how to give, how to acknowledge and to bless, how to accept defeat and shame, how from descending to ascend, how to come nearer to my end. Two eyes where I shall find always repose from weary nights and days, two eyes whose beauty in my heart I feel when we are far apart, where should the tiniest tear awake? I know my very soul should break, and all things other cease to be. Those two eyes mean so much to me. 1950, first published in The Kerryman. Now, my mother then had an awful hard upbringing, and he was, my father was great to her, he was a backbone to her. Her mother died when she was two, and she was reared with, with family, and they were kind to her. And then her father died of pleurisy when she was 16. And, you know, it was tough. And my father was great, he had a great understanding of her. But that's, she was strong. She's a strong woman today still. And then in our little town then, there is a woman up the street. She was, her name was Marianne Relihel. And they say that she ran a, a pub and a, she had a shop. And they say that Big Maggie is based on her. So he loved these kind of feisty women. And he had, great, I, I, he had great kind of compassion for women as well. He enjoyed women, enjoyed their company. And like, like I was always with him everywhere. And, you know, I suppose I was his pet, really. And uh, he brought me in great drinking sessions. And he taught me how to drink and everything. <laughs> in respect, yeah, and, I, and my daughters are here. But anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, We spoke at the start about um, the Abbey rejecting the play in 1959, as they rejected many plays by people who would go on to be um, some of the most important writers of the 20th century Irish theatre. Um, And I'm wondering what your father made of his kind of latter success when, you know, obviously Sive was then produced in the Abbey in the 1980s, it's being produced right now um, up on the main stage. How did he respond to, um, I suppose, Uh, his national success? Because he was a national figure with his newspaper columns.
1: Yeah, and the Abbey toured then also with the field. They went to Russia, and the Russians said that we had uh, that uh, that my father had stolen the idea. Of course, the greed for land is probably universal, kind of.
2: But also very, very Russian. I know there's a real
1: yeah. Uh, My father uh, never lost his. Childlike sense of wonder and sense of fun, and he was he was so proud when the plays did well, and he was really thrilled, and we'd, he'd be waiting for the reviews and everything. You know, he was he was really chuffed to be honest, and delighted.
2: And was his work still being produced on the local scene then?
1: Yeah, really, I suppose John B is the darling. has has been over the years not as much now, but uh, uh, the darling of the uh, the darling of the amateur groups. It has been, his work has been produced all over Ireland really. And uh, it's, it's still to this day, you know, it's very popular around Ireland. You so teach, you teach it as well.
2: And I'm, I'm sure that that idea of it being so formative to students' education um, enables the plays to kind of continue to last.
1: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've taught uh, the fields and I can remember I taught a girl there, there was a line in the field about, you know, the drapers are too hypocritical to put knickers in the windows. And this one said to me, I can't remember what country she was from, she, that is my country, Miss, she said to me. You know, and uh, you know the way the girls also have identified with the play, uh, the field as, as well, you know, the way the men were so dismissive of the girls and making kind of kind of sexual, there's nothing like a bull to move ahead for that line. They could identify with that as well, you know, to this day, the way fellas kind of treat them, you know, kind of, you know, this kind of thing. So they could see that, that you know, it, it still has meaning and relevance to young people today. And even Sive, you know, that atrocious story in the news now about the girl being abused. She was, that was abuse of Sive. And after the play last night, we usually there's a huge sense of gaiety after a production, but we couldn't kind of laugh for a good three quarters of an hour because we were all affected you know it it, it struck a card with us what happened the violation of that young girl's innocence and it's still happening it's still happening in our world in our country you know it's I still think it's still happening anyway and do you
2: think it's that sense of um I suppose you're somebody who probably lived through the changes of uh yeah, and womanhood and the, yeah in our the, society
1: yeah, Joanne Hayes and, and all that, yeah, I have I suppose but i don 't know we have moved on, and I think we 've stepped back a bit as well when you see these things happening, you know, human trafficking, women coming into countries it's it's it 's appalling, you know women being blackguarded here and all that it still is significant and it's you were the only girl in the in the family was
2: your father very um encouraging of you as Oh, you know, as as a woman or as a girl, being treated differently um, than the male children, or well, he encouraging want me a to particular. be
1: a kind of a, an engineer or anything like that, you know. <laughs> but uh, I was—he—he uh, he really wanted me to be happy, and I suppose uh, he was always, you know, he wanted me to have fun and enjoy life. And I'd say, Dad, what should I do? Be nice to old people. He was very decent with me, you know. <laughs> he was very decent with me always, and my to my brothers as well. He, you know, he could buy you a car out of the blue or something like that he was very loving and full of fun so he was and he all and the other thing he always wanted me to do with him is go for a walk with him and we'd go down to the river and he loved the river and um he's written about the river as well uh, lots of songs about the river and poems about his beloved river feel and uh he'd he'd be talking he'd be telling me funny stories and he loved a place called Gartonard in Listowel. It's a woodland walk near the river, and a few trees now have been destroyed there. And he, was, he told me a story, he, I remember him telling me a story about a time he went for a walk with his mother down, uh, Gortenard, so that must have been, in the, he was a little boy, it must have been in the 1930s. And they came across uh, two girls kissing on the lips. And uh, he said, Mammy, 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 look look at the two girls kissing. And my grandmother said, they're only practicing until they meet boys, John. <laughs> <laughs> but he was full of fun. It, there was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun, and we still do, really. You know, uh, we enjoy life, he and he was a very much a man of his place. He was obsessed with football, with Gaelic football, with rugby. He would be so proud of our, the street where we live is amazing, really. If you think about it, our street in Listowel, about six doors down, doors down from the bar, we have um, Janet and sexton's Granny lives there, and uh, she, she's my mother says. That uh, she's older than harder, and kind of competition now with <laughs> each other, and uh, in the longevity stakes. And then you go down the street another little bit, and you have uh, Bernard Brogan's, the two, and Alan Brogan's uh, mom came from there. Jimmy Deenan introduced uh, Marie Marie Keenstack to Bernard, the other her, the, their dad Bernard Brogan. In the I suppose in the 70s, you can cross the road then, and it's on the same street, and you have P.J. Dillon, the filmmaker came from the street as well it's a great street, could, so really, and he, he would have been he loved football, Gaelic football, Listole football, under eights, matches under tens, matches under 16s, matches. He was uh, very rooted in his own town. he wasn't a kind of one of these aloof, reclusive, depressed, despondent. Writer, self-absorbed writers. He was big into his own place and always trying to push Lestall and bring it on. And that brings me to Writers Week. Then he founded that in 1970, in the 1970s, with others, with Nora Rillahan and a lot of other people. And he, um, he, he, he kind of developed that, I suppose, with others to try and, and uh, to kind of bring the town, a, you know, a step further towards notoriety. Well then. I was going to, going to
2: um, ask, was that to do with kind of, uh, or you know, the idea behind it? Was it to help develop the town as well as the love of yeah, literature? Yeah, I think so. And with the Brian town?
1: McMahon as well. Uh, you know, Brian McMahon uh, founded it as well. And yeah, to encourage people to write. Brian McMahon came up with the idea. He went to America and he came back with the idea of writing workshops, and he pioneered that concept in Ireland at the time. And we now, I'm involved, in, I was chairperson of Writers Week and I'm a director, and we now run about 16 writing workshops for every kind of genre of writing you want. And uh, they encouraged that idea. And I suppose to bring writers together, it's one of the oldest and most, I'm kind of blowing our own trumpet now, distinguished festivals, in the country and um, to get writers come together and I have great memories of all of that as well being Brendan Kennelly and Michael Hartnett, like a little or a little bird up on the counter but singing she was only 16 and reciting poetry I have great, a great I had a great childhood the Dubliners coming in and out to our bar I could be upstairs then and there could be singing going on until all hours of the morning and we were taught all the songs as well you know we've great kind of great recollections I
2: suppose that always uh, strikes me um, about his work—that sense of kind of you hear the story about sing listening at the keyhole, yes, and I, yeah. you know, to the think Ireland of your Islands, yeah, yeah, to think of your father upstairs with I suppose the noises from the pub, uh, kind of filtering up, and this sense of having a home that's in one way like a private space upstairs, but also this kind of public forum. Yeah. Uh, and
1: got, yeah, and then you see he'd go down then, and in his latter years he'd have a cup of coffee with all the farmers who come into town and then he was—he really wasn't a snob and he hated any kind of social snobbery or academic sob- snobbery, or snobbery, you know, over she's got more land than me or whatever like that. He loved all kinds of people and he had a fantastic funeral. It was all kinds of everything came to the funeral. They were rotten. They came from, they were sober, they were drunk and then they were respectable. You had former Taoiseach and then you could have fellas. He helped out a lot of people as well. You know, lots, and that came to the fore at the funeral, and he, he helped a lot of people out in the cutie, kind of in the quiet, financially or otherwise, gave people advice. He was a great man, really, you know. He had his flaws. He was no saint, you know. He had, he had a fine temper and all of that, and he could get tired and all, but he was I loved him.
2: And I think he was really important, his own lack of snobbery, he was really important in breaking down some of those barriers between amateur and professional work um, in terms of his own work coming from that amateur tradition and enriching the professional theatre yeah. in, in Dublin.
1: Yeah, he, Yeah. I suppose in his own way. he And he ridiculed it. And Writers' Week is kind of like that as well. You know, as a festival, it's very kind of... Um, we like to be very engaging and it's a man on the street festival and i suppose a lot of critics have kind of faulted him because maybe they thought he was too popular a lot of his work was too pop that's because maybe it embraced the masses a bit you know but that's the, that was his kind of mindset or i
2: know your mother spoke in that interview that you mentioned um online about um the fact that this, you know, the fact that he thought that Sive was an Abbey play, and I suppose I was wondering what she might have meant by Abbey play. And I suppose what she probably meant was that he thought maybe that the that the play actually spoke to a body of people rather than just to the local community. Yes, yeah. And that being the defining factor.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because when it's the National Theatre of Ireland, really, it would be. Yeah, that's a very good point that it would talk to a body politic. Yeah, yeah I can see that that point of view. Speaking really? of the body politic,
2: I just thought um, we might open it up to the floor and see if there's any questions.
1: Will we say one decade at a rosary now? Do yeah.
2: <laughs> you
1: know the way, the way that Kerry uh, is in Dublin and yeah. uh, there's a head for bias in my acting in Karen. Oh, how are you? Uh, <laughs> a part and I'll proud carry proud of you.
2: But, you know, the, the kind of thing in Ireland, you know, all this, the prevalence still today that uh, there's the other 31 counties and there's Dublin. No yeah. And I was just wondering what was said there, you know, about the, the ordinary man in the street. Yeah. And the certain, and the tradition of the Abbey, there's a certain elitism, Anglo-Irish, there's a kind of a clash of cultures there. How did your father look in the Abbey?
1: How does he look on at- us? Well, I suppose it would depend on, you know, if he was asked to, you know, he. I'd say he, I can remember he was awarded, was it called the Sea Award, Award. I can remember that, I was pregnant with one of my daughters, and he, he really respected the Abbey, really. I'm sure he was hurt when he was rejected by the Abbey at that time, but I, was never, I wasn't there for that. But he wasn't a man, really. He didn't bear grudges and he often lectured us on the importance of forgiveness. He was a very magnanimous spirit, but like he could be angry as well at the same time I and mean, he had a chip in his shoulder about a lot of things. I'm not saying that he was like a pope, a pope or you know, very um, angelic, he wasn't. But I'd say he, he, by and large, he had great respect for the Abbey. I would say really, you know, he didn't have this big kind of grudge against the Abbey at all. And because we were, we've been to the, you know, in the 1980s, as you said, we had a lot of productions here with Ben Barnes and everything. We, lots of fun times, and here we are again, you know.
2: And by the time his work would have been produced at the Abbey, it had a new building, it had a new director, and it really began to engage with writers who who had started to be critical of uh, the status quo. Whereas the Abbey that he sent his original that he sent Sive to in 1959. Would have been, I suppose, quite a stage. Um,
1: yeah, But well, so he went up. underwent kind of in the 80s in the Abbey a kind of a renaissance as well. And then for the last few years, a lot of our plays were done by his plays, our plays. As I, his plays were done by Druids. So now it's great to have another a new departure. Again, it's very interesting, you know, from a direct, directorial point of view to have seen how Connell Morrison um, treated Sive. I think that he was—he was he a was real purist. He was very. The, it was a very um, dramatic, theatrical production, and I, I was—I was touched at how he portrayed Mina last night because Mina, Jesus, she had an awful life between bacon, bread, and getting meal and, and washing out, washing, you know, washing um, clothes and. It was a real life a, do- a toil and, tr- and tr- drudgery. We saw the human side to mean it through the stage directions as reflected through the direction of, of um, the very observant direction of Connell, which was very interesting for us again. You know, it was another kind of look at, another insight into the play. Um, um, did you follow up any favorite playwright himself or writer particularly you particularly see? Liked? Dickens, really, and then he got, yeah, he got lazy, but he had loads, of, he, I suppose, he, he had a lot of good friends, you know, playwrights, he would have been great friends with Bernard Farrell, he would have been very good friends with Tom Murphy, who was there, Bernard and Tom were there last night, Hugh Leonard, they were all, you know, and they'd, they'd come to Writers Week and everything, and um, then Brendan Kennelly and himself were real buddies, and I suppose uh, Michael Hartnett, they were his... Yeah, but they were his real friends, you know, and, and Brian McMahon, of course, as well, was in the town with him, and they were great pals as well. But uh, not really, because he, he was really into uh, t- television, and he loved kind of, um, he loved westerns, as I said before, and that kind of thing. And I'll always remember when uh, the, you know, the tape, the video recorders, when did they come out? And the kind of the, was it the late, seven, early 80s? We were thrilled with, the, he was mad for watching movies. We, we'd stay up all night watching movies. All, and he loved, which I love myself, all the gangster movies. He would have loved you now The Wolf of Wall Street, that kind of thing. He loved all of the Godfather movies, Scarface. And I watched them all, I was about 10 or 11 yeah. with him. And um, he was big into film. He got a, he was too, I think his brain was too tired for reading. You know, he, and film was his kind of escape route. Then we didn't go to the cinema. We were delighted anyway with uh, this newfangled uh, video recorder, and there was no shop in the so we used to go off to Ballybunion to get the tapes at the start, start nine miles away. So he loved film really, and TV. Good, you know, good and bad television, as I said. At really, at
2: the same time, that seems to make quite a
1: lot of sense. I mean,
2: Dickens and westerns. I mean, if you of reduce them down to their basic elements they're about the battle between good and evil and if you look yeah. at those you know if you look at his big plays they again have that same kind of oppositional force between you know the the, the bad characters yeah. and, the, and, and the virtuous characters yeah, it's and, interesting. Uh, Durango
1: the novel is all about a cattle drive and that he was inspired about the great cattle drives across the across the plains of the American state so again American film probably influenced him a lot as well as well as the river and the the community and the hardships experienced by women. Loneliness again, he saw a lot of it. You know, sadness, you can see it really epitomized in a lot of his plays, really. Immigration, he immigrated himself uh, to to gather up enough money to to come home to marry my mother and uh, to buy a bar. So he he was a chemist assistant in the town and he really wasn't into that and he wasn't very much into that. While he was practicing as a chemist assistant, he was writing poems in the background and uh, encouraged by his boss, uh, Mr. Keen Stack, in the town, uh, as, as he trained as a chemist assistant. Then he decided he'd have to immigrate to make enough money to open the bar, to buy a bar, or buy some kind of business, and uh, so he wrote about immigration as well. and. Not only in Many Young at Twenty, Hut Forty Two is a is a, is a play now that hasn't been done. There's a lot of plays that need to be kind of rejuvenated again, you know. The, I know we have the you have the power plays, the Big Maggies and the Field and inside, but there's other very interesting plays in the background there, like I was reading through Hut forty two and a few more of them, which really explore, you know, the, the awfulness of immigration.
2: Did he have that familiar trajectory of going over to
1: England, working on the building sites? Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. And uh, he went back. I can remember he went back then. We had, I think we had a flat cule, uh, and the flat hole is horrendous. It's a great crack if you're, if you're at the other side of the counter, but if you're walking for a flat kuel, oh, my God, you learn your shillings. And, he, of course, he dodged it, and he went to London, and he went to, to see where his old landlady lived, and she'd passed away. I can remember that. He came back and told us all about that. He, actually, when he went to London, he might go to a few plays then, all right, you know. I think I see Lisa moving in the background well, there.
0: Time for one more question, if someone had a burning question that they had to ask. Was he a person before his time? Was he a person before his time? Yes, no, it's not a case. Do you think he was ahead of his time, Joanne?
1: I suppose he was, really. You know, I can remember him being interviewed once on radio and about women, you know, and somebody said that he was a... Mis- some uh, a lady in the interview said that he was a misogynist, and I can remember David Norris uh, defending him and saying, really, he put those words, those kind of um, statements and those, that language into the, into the bodies of men, into the voices of men, to expose, the hypocr- to expose how, how, how ill-treated women were, really, rather than they. I suppose he was, really. He was a brave voice. He was an angry young man as well. And he got it out and he expressed it. He took, he also, another thing he probably remember about him was his involvement in the language freedom movement. There was a rule whereby you, um, the baby's crying. Uh, there was a rule whereby you, you were, um, what were you? You couldn't, you'd fail your leave insert, I think, if you, uh, if you didn't, if pass you, pass your Irish. Pass you your Irish. Your and he got very involved in yeah. that. And he was threatened over that as well. That really infuriated him. Yeah, so I suppose he was really a man before his time. But then, as as he, he kind of mellowed, then as he got older, you know, and he went to mass. He never went to mass when we were young, and that gave us a great license not to go to mass ourselves.
0: Well, he, he was a man ahead of his time, but the time is upon us now. So I'm afraid we have to say goodbye. To and thank Anna. you for the
1: honour of being here. Thank, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah.